this should be the shortest sermon ever. <laughs> Who said amen? <laughs> I'm trying not to look up. Well, you all have done well. It's time change Sunday. That usually when you mess with someone's sleep, that's not normally a good thing, but I hear some uh, joy in your hearts today. That's good, and you're all here. That's even better, but this is the easier one, isn't it, for time change? Uh, just wait till the spring, right? Good to see everybody here. Joy, that is the conversation piece for today, joy. And joy is our culture's constant craving. By everyone's measurement, it is our culture's constant craving. And based on a variety of responses to all kinds of societal events, you could look at this constant craving for joy and you would have to come to the conclusion that we are actually, as a society, overall, a very unhappy, dissatisfied culture. Now you can if you want, you can go and you can Google all of, the, all of the statistics. I did that, I thought about putting them in my notes, but I thought that's just gonna get in, way, in the way of the Bible. But you can go Google it and you can find how many people are discouraged. They actually track those numbers. And if you track those numbers, I would gather that there's quite a few here that fit the categories. Just statistically speaking. And that's odd, isn't it? I mean, it should sound odd because we have more wealth, more education, more access to state-of-the-art healthcare, more access to more information, more connection to more people, more opportunity for more employment in more areas of work, more abilities to express ourselves, more medicinal ways to treat our discouragement and despair, and yet the rates of despair and depression are continually increasing. And as we have seen, our society right now is a virtual tinderbox waiting for the next social match to be lit. I don't think I have to provide examples. We know it. And what is fascinating is that as we talk about joy, especially as we talk about joy today in this text, there will be a tendency in some people and likely too many people to assume that the pursuit of biblical joy is simply not possible for many people. Because there is a cultural assumption today that a lack of joy is more of a biological issue than a behavioral one. Many people today assume we can't obey this verse or I'm not responsible to obey this verse because I have an issue that drives me beyond being responsible for my own joy. And I think that's much of our problem. We don't think the Bible is applicable for struggling people. And what is fascinating is that even in the secular world that has advocated strongly for a pharmaceutical remedy for depression, they all acknowledge that medications must be mixed with therapy in order to be truly effective, which means drugs don't fix our sorrows. A significant degree of how we think process, approach problems, and internalize issues is related to the reasons we remain sad or depressed. It is a widely and wildly, I should say, it is wildly simplistic to say that consistent sadness is fundamentally an issue akin to a common cold or diabetes. That is an overly simplistic idea. It's far more complicated than that. In contrast to much of the culture, the Bible calls Christians to a life of perpetual joy. Do you believe that? The Bible calls us to live a life of perpetual joy. I mean, what else should I understand rejoice always to mean? The Bible calls us to live a life of perpetual joy, meaning 
that there exists a constant challenge to this joy. If I have to be told to rejoice always, it must then mean there is a constant challenge to my joy, right? And that also means then that there is a genuine ability for any and every Christian to live in consistent joy. Whatever the Bible calls us to, God has promised to give us the means to live in. The consistency of our joy is always tied to the constancy of our heart. What we believe will govern our convictions and drive our actions and that will determine the consistency of our joy. Hormones, chemical changes, dietary effects may exacerbate a decrease in joy but they do not determine whether you have joy or not. That is why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Now I want you to recall with me where we are in our present study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Beginning back in chapter 12 and going all through verse 22, we are rounding out the final two chapters of this book that focus on how we are to grow spiritually and primarily How do we grow spiritually in relationship to how we love one another and how we have hope in God? So you remember the verse that outlines the entirety of the book all the way back in chapter 1 verse 3. It reminds us that there are a triad of Christian graces that comprise the life of a Christian. That is the work of faith which was really unpacked in the first three chapters. The first three chapters describe what the work that comes from faith looks like. And then there's also the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, which are detailed for us in chapters four and five. Now we looked at chapter four in great detail and in verses three through 12, it showed us deeper ways in which we could grow in our love for one another. Then we looked at chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, and it showed us deeper ways in how we grow in our hope in God through a kind of encouragement about the future that would provide stability in the present. That's why when we come to chapter 5, verse 12 to 22, what we're seeing here is a reflection on, it's kind of the capstone of this consideration of how we grow in love for each other and hope in God, and it rehearses seven different habits of Christian growth in regard to love and hope. So seven different habits that help you grow in love for each other and hope in God. It's the capstone to this whole conversation. We began looking at them a few weeks ago. Verses 12 to 15 show us how we grow further in love. That is, we grow in appreciation of leaders, verses 12 and 13. Patience with others, verse 14. And goodness toward all, in verse 15. That's how we grow in love. In verses 16 through 22 of chapter 5, it's going to give us four ways to grow further in our hope in God. We grow in joy, verse 16, our passage for this morning, prayer, verse 17, gratitude, verse 18, and discernment, verses 19 to 22. Now, it's not difficult to see how love is actually connected to those first three habits. If you grow in appreciation, love is actually mentioned in verse 13. You are to esteem your leaders highly in love. Love is connected to that. Growing in patience, this is an obvious loving way to live with challenging people. Growing in goodness that we looked at last week, that is seeking after what is good for all, especially those who treat you in evil ways. That's fundamental to what even Jesus said regarding loving your enemies. What about the final four? These final four habits of Christian growth, how are they related to growing in hope? Well, let me just give you a brief overview of it. Joy that we'll look at today actually replaces the hopelessness that we looked at in chapter four of those who were sorrowing over the loss of loved ones who had died. Expectant prayer that we'll look at next replaces the discouragement about present events in light of all the realities that are coming in the future that was addressed in chapter five, verses one to 11. Especially when we're called to be alert 
We noted when we were studying those verses that that phrase, be alert, is oftentimes connected to prayer. That's why prayer is called for. Comprehensive gratitude that we'll look at in a few weeks expresses the truth described in chapter 5 verse 9 that we are not a people destined for wrath but for obtaining salvation. Therefore, we're constantly grateful. Patient discernment that we'll look at last is the way that we respond even to the most urgent but errant teachings about the future that could easily unsettle us. We have to be a discerning people. So joy Prayer, gratitude, and discernment are four more ways to grow in how you have hope in the Lord. If you want to have more hope in God, you're going to have to do it by cultivating joy, prayer, gratitude, and discernment. And then you'll hope in God and you'll find steadfastness from that. So this morning we're going to look at the first of these last four habits that help us grow in our hope. And that is grow in joy. Grow in joy. Rejoice always. Just two words. And only two words. Two words that actually could make for many, many hours of digging into the terms in terms of the biblical truth. In fact, I reviewed more than 140 verses in the New Testament possessing the terms related to rejoicing and joy. A cursory search for similar terms in the Old Testament would yield more than 250 verses that speak about joy and rejoicing. I would say the Bible seems to think it has something to say about our joy, wouldn't you? Now, rest assured, we're not going to cover all 400 and some verses this morning. It may feel like that at times, But that's not really what we're going to do. But I do want to give you at least a jet tour. And that's all it can be for the next hour or so is a jet tour through what biblical joy is all about. How are we to understand biblical joy? These two words call us to live in a state of consistent, constant joy. So how do we grow in our joy? True, consistent joy. Now to understand the application of this command, I want us to ask and answer four critical questions connected to the constancy of our joy. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to ask, we're going to answer four critical questions connected to the constancy of our joy. And see if we can't unpack this a little bit. Yes, there is far more that should be said, far more we can say than what we will say. But this is at least a beginning, something to go back to and think about over and over. Four critical questions connected to the constancy of our joy. So let's ask and answer the first one, which should be the most obvious one. What is joy? What is joy? It's one of those things you, you think, I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. When, when I see joy, I know it. But do you really? Because I would suggest to you that the Bible says you can have joy even when you don't necessarily see it in someone. What is joy? Merriam-Webster defines joy as, quote, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune by the prospect of possessing what one desires. It's a state of happiness, a source of delight. That's how Webster defines it. Now there's a lot about that definition with which we would find biblical affinity. Joy is connected to the emotions. It is. If you want to say you have joy but it's not connected to the emotions, I think you're in outer space. Joy is connected to our emotions. We have emotions. And it's good that we have emotions. Let's not have a Christianity that devalues emotions. Joy is connected to the emotions. It's a kind of emotional response. Biblical joy is an emotion that comes from, it's evoked by well-being. It is a biblical idea of having a sense of satisfaction. Biblical joy is. And even if we were to look at that idea of a state of happiness, I'm all good with that. A state of happiness is a good expression regarding biblical joy as long as that state of happiness is connected to true biblical happiness. 
Now, where the definition that Webster gives us of typical joy differs from biblical joy is that biblical joy possesses what one desires when what one desires is what God desires. And biblical joy is a state of happiness, but biblical happiness can actually exist in the midst of incredible sorrow and in the midst of sadness. See, that, that's where culture and Bible tend to depart. Biblical joy can exist where sadness is present. Biblical joy is a bit different than social success or culturally affirmed good fortune. Biblical joy actually goes beyond possessing what you desire. It actually goes down to what you desire in connection to what God gives. So I would define biblical joy simply this way. Biblical joy is the soul's satisfied pleasure in God. This is what biblical joy is. It is the soul's satisfied pleasure in God. Yes, there's a lot more that we could say about that definition. I think it gets down to the essence of what biblical joy is. It is something that exists in the soul, the inner person, not merely externally in your circumstances. It is a pleasure, it is an emotion, it is an emotion that is connected to pleasure. It's a pleasure that you have and you feel because of God. And it being in God means that it includes a connection to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's why James can actually say, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various, what? Trials. James 1-2. Paul can say that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing in 2 Corinthians 6-10. Or when he also says, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong, 2 Corinthians 13-9. Peter can actually say, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, 1 Peter 4-13. Or the writer of Hebrews He says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How could he say that? Because this is his definition of joy. It is the soul's satisfied pleasure in God. I understand trials are not what we normally associate with good fortune or possessing what we desire. I don't know anybody who says like, yes, I love trials bring them on I want more and more and more I don't know anybody who says I get so happy about suffering now if you're one of those we'd love to meet you you are an odd duck (laughs) no one's jumping up and down for suffering maybe if they haven't had much they think that a season of trial is not typically the what we call the state of happiness But the joy that we find in the Bible, actually the joy that's called for in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 can be present when we have bad fortune. It can be present when we don't possess what we desire. You have to see your state from God's eternal perspective if you want to have biblical joy. So... Until some of you email me and give me some better thoughts on this, and I, I expect that this can be you know, improved upon, I'm just going to stick with this definition for right now. The soul's satisfied pleasure in God. That's what biblical joy is. Now hopefully as we walk through the remainder of our study, we're going to see the reality of this definition of joy. It'll just become more and more obvious to us that this is what true joy is all about. But I want us to dig deeper a little bit more in this definition of joy before we move on from it. So I want to unpack that a little bit more. I want us to dig into this. So if this is the definition of joy, what are the foundational stones to all biblical definitions of joy? When I define joy, what has to be present there for this definition to stand? So let me give you basically just two of these foundational stones to this definition. First, 
Joy comes from the fullness of God. This is foundational for you understanding what biblical joy is. Joy comes from the fullness of God. Now, what do I mean by the fullness of God? What I mean by that is that joy is Trinitarian in its source. It's Trinitarian in its source. It comes from all of what makes God, God. In fact, I want to show you, joy is connected to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three persons of the one God are all connected to our joy. It comes from God and the fullness of God. For example, joy comes from God the Father. We should know that. Just jot down one verse. You don't need to turn there. Just jot it down. And I'm going to give you a lot of verses to jot down. So just be ready. Ephesians 1.3. We'll just focus on that one in relationship to the Father. Joy comes from the Father. Ephesians 1.3. Listen to it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Why do I say that has, has joy connected to it when it doesn't even have the word joy in the phrase? Because three times it uses a word that speaks of spiritual happiness and that's the word blessed. That's what blessed is. It is a spiritual state of happiness. It says, blessed be God. Let's find our joy in God. Blessed be God. Why? Because he's blessed us. He's made us happy. The Father has made us happy with all the spiritual blessings. And what are blessings? They're tools of our happiness. And if you want to see what those are, you just read through the rest of chapter 1 in Ephesians 1 and you will see him unpack them in Trinitarian form from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All the blessings come from the Father that make our heart happy. They're tied to God the Father. Secondly, joy comes from God the Son. I just want to note, do you remember what was said regarding the coming of the Son of God? You remember what was said about the coming of Jesus, Luke 2.10? When the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. What was the good news of great joy? The Messiah has come. Jesus is the source of joy, isn't he? How did the Magi respond when they saw the star that would point them to the Savior of the world? Matthew 2.10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know how you can get more joyful than that, to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I would think that maybe these wise men actually started getting a little bit giddy. There had to be some expression, how do you see exceeding joy and great joy? There had to be some expression when they saw that star that would lead them to the Messiah. Mary said of Jesus, the son that she would deliver in Luke 1.47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Joy comes from someone's connection to the son of God. Also, joy comes from God, the Holy Spirit. It is interesting to see in the New Testament how many times joy is connected to the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus, if you want to see the one occasion where I think the New Testament actually suggests he laughs, I think it's in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In Luke 10, 21, when Jesus thinks about salvation and God's wisdom in it, it says in Luke 10, 21, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Now, some would say that means he did it quietly. I don't think there's anything quiet about rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. I, I gather it that Luke could put that down because when he's getting the eyewitnesses accounts, the disciples said there was this huge outburst of joy. I, I would gather that means he laughed out loud. 
And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. That's what made Jesus joyful when he looked at salvation and God's wisdom in it. Acts 13, 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking. Could we just say that again? The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Being in the kingdom of God is connected to joy in the Holy Spirit. We all remember Galatians chapter 5, don't we? What is the fruit? What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. Don't pass over it too quick. Don't rush past joy to get to all the other characteristics of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It is joy that shows that you have the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? They had tribulation. They had affliction. And what did they also have? Joy. Joy that came not from their circumstances, not from people's affirmation of them, not by their acceptance by others. It came from their relationship to the Holy Spirit. Joy is connected to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The fullness of God breeds biblical joy. But also joy not only comes from the fullness of God, but joy flows from the fullness of salvation. It flows from the fullness of salvation. And what I want to point out to you in this, and the way I describe the fullness of salvation, is what it has done for us in the past, what salvation does for us in the present, and what salvation has for us in the future. Both past, present, and future are all connected in our salvation to joy. For example, we could say joy flows from forgiveness of past rebellion. Just think of that. Joy flows from the forgiveness of past rebellion. If you want to find a chapter that shows that theme over and over about past rebellion connection to joy, you look at a place like Luke 15. You remember all the things that were lost but found? The sun, the coin, the sheep. And in every single one of those events, when what has been found is found, what happens? People have joy. In fact, Luke 15, 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Where's joy? When a sinner repents of their sin, when you look back to past sin and present forgiveness in that, you find joy. When the shepherds find the lost sheep, Luke 15, 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. What is that an illustration of? The sinner who has been found. It brings joy. When the prodigal son's father gains his son back, what does the father say in Luke 15, 32? We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Forgiveness of past sins brings joy. If you want to, you want to bring joy to your heart, Remind yourself of how deep your sin has been against God. And so you can see how high his forgiveness has been. When the Ethiopian eunuch was saved in Acts chapter 8 verse 39, when he came up out of the water of baptism, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Forgiven, forgiven. 
When the Gentiles heard that the saving gospel message was for them and that their sin could be forgiven, Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Salvation from past rebellion creates joy. Joy also flows from satisfaction and present security. It's not just the past forgiveness, it's present security. I want you to listen to how Peter expresses this in 1 Peter 1. Listen to this. In verse 5, we are protected by the power of God. That's present security. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, in what? Your present protection in salvation. In this, we greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Isn't that interesting? If you've been distressed, what do we normally associate that with? Sadness. But in the midst of distress, what does Peter say you can have? Rejoice greatly. Why? Your salvation is protected. It doesn't go anywhere. No one can take it. Not even your own sin. In fact, he goes on and he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You are overwhelmed with joy because you have such security presently in your salvation. You rehearse on that long enough of what God does to keep you and your soul breathes easy and rests and you're satisfied in God and that's joy joy also flows from stability in future completion past forgiveness present security future completion think about Jesus when he was on the cross when he was being murdered on the cross how much about that circumstance would you say That seems joyful. Surrounded by people either weeping or celebrating his death. Knowing that he was about to give up his spirit. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The circumstances were not joyful. They were not happy circumstances. But what sustained him? The joy set before him. What's the joy set before him? The father was about to turn his face away. That's not filled with joy, is it? No, the joy set before him. Achieving again the glory that he once had with God, the father. Being in eternity again with God, the father. Seeing the ransom of all the souls In forgiveness, there was so much joy that made him stick with the cross. Aren't you glad that joy kept him on the cross or you and I would not be here? Future completion. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 12, we rejoice in hope. Hope is always connected to something that isn't present, but it's future. We rejoice in hope. It's connected to our future completion. You remember Paul's comment of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.19? Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. What was the future completion that gave Paul joy? The saints in the presence of the Father at the coming of Christ. It gave him so much joy. Made him stable. What's ahead? Friends, you know what's ahead for those who are in Christ? The new heavens, the new earth, perfection, stability forever, always growing and increasing in the knowledge of God with no hindrance, total joy. What are we worried about? 
Joy comes from salvation. The fullness of God in salvation. Joy comes from the fullness of our salvation. Past, present, future. Father, Son, and Spirit. So let me just put on this definition here. This is reserved for those who are in Christ, isn't it? If you have Christ, you have everything. So I understand. I understand why society wants to go somewhere else with the definition of joy. Because they don't have what gives future hope. They don't have what gives present stability. They don't have what forgives of the past. How are you going to deal with the past? How are you going to understand the present? How do you have any hope for tomorrow if you don't have the Son of God, the indwelling Spirit, the wisdom of the Father in all of your salvation? If you are not in Christ, the quest for your joy is an empty one. If you have him, if you have him, you can rejoice always, always. That's what joy is. It's a satisfied pleasure in the soul, in God. Second question to ask and answer. How can we cultivate joy? How can we cultivate joy? Possessing the fullness of God and the richness of of salvation does not mean that we won't struggle with the issues of joy. I mean, that's why he has to command us, rejoice always. Have you ever seen how many times you have to pull yourself back to a biblical way to think so that you have joy? So you have to cultivate it. If he commands it, that means you must cultivate it. But I want to give you some ideas of how to do that. And what is involved in cultivating lasting, consistent, constant joy? First, delight in God's truth. Delight in God's truth. God's truth is not merely what is true. God's truth is the scriptures and the scriptures understood correctly. That's God's truth. That's what you have to keep in mind. God's truth is not just things that are true. I've heard people say all truth is God's truth. That, that is a, a way to bring truth down. Truth is the scriptures. And the scriptures are a, rightly, a right understanding of the scripture. And if you would delight in accurately understood truth, you will have joy. Let me just give you a few verses that remind us of that. You can jot them down. I'm going to move fast through these. So don't try to look them all up. Just jot down. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. The very first psalm. How blessed, there's that word for happy. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So there's no blessedness or joy in the way of the world. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Go through the rest of the psalm. He's stable. He's secure. He's well fed. His delight is in the law. Put your delight in the truth of God found in the scriptures. There is great delight. Psalm 19 verse 8 The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Matter of fact, if you read Psalm 19 correctly, the first number of verses, the first six verses are all talking about all of the ways God makes himself known in creation. And he does show himself in creation, but the creation and what everyone can see will not rejoice the heart. What rejoices the heart? Verse 8. The precepts of the Lord rejoice the heart. You can look to the world all you want. You can look to the creation. You can try to study it and be mesmerized by it. It doesn't rejoice the heart. The scriptures unlock the heart. In fact, Psalm 19.10 goes on to say, they, the scriptures, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119 verse 14 I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. 
Psalm 119.11, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Let me throw it in from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. When it defines love, do you know what love does not do? Love does not find joy in unrighteousness. Love does not find joy in sin. But, what does it say? Love rejoices in the truth. How does the world define all that's going on? That will lead you away from God, thus into sin. Not love. Love rejoices in the truth. Love finds its joy and satisfaction in what God says is true. If you're looking for joy, you're not gonna have your soul satisfied in the pleasures found in God if you're looking for it outside of his truth. You're not gonna find it in friends outside of the scriptures. You're not gonna find it in family outside of the scriptures. You're not gonna find it in anything, not your career, not your wealth, not reaching a certain plateau of money, not in perfect health. None of that will give you joy. None of that, the scriptures. Why? because they define for us how God sees things. And we need to see as he sees. Read the word. Don't just read it, meditate on it. I mean, we we said it this morning and I was teaching one of the equipping classes and we're studying through John Owen's book, The Communion with God. And we're, we're just unpacking all of this rich truth about all that God has done for those who believe in Christ. And we're saying, okay, what's, what's the... What's the result of that? And someone says, well, it, it seems to drive out discouragement. Right, right. When you see all of the wealth of what God has done, it's hard to be sad about it, even if your circumstances aren't happy ones. Delight in God's truth. Second, another way to cultivate. Find pleasure in God's sovereignty. Find pleasure in God's sovereignty. Find yourself satisfied in the goodness of God's sovereignty. That is that God rules over all things because he has the right to rule over all things and to govern them as he sees fit. I hear people, they get real upset about God's sovereignty. What do you mean he's in control of all things? Like like he's violating our sovereign self-will. Who does he think he is? (laughs) He's God. He's God and he has the right to rule over everything and he does. And he doesn't say, you know what? Just to be kind, I'll let you do it any way you want to do it and I'll keep my hands off and I won't do a thing. That would be disaster for us. A disaster we could not bring ourselves back from. That's why he has to be sovereign. He has to or there's no hope. And if he's sovereign, There's every hope. There's every hope. Revelation 19.5, a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. What gave them joy? The ruling sovereign God. Embrace the truth that God governs all things for his glory. What do we call that? Providence. Remember our study through the book of Genesis just a few summers ago? God governs all things for his glory. That's providence. It's what makes you look back and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that gives joy to the heart. It's the only thing that will give you refreshment when you think about Romans 8 28 that God causes all things to work together for good that rejoices the heart I remember when I was in college and a secular school and I was uh, I had like five different majors in college I was a very undecided individual couldn't make up my mind of what I was going to do so one one time when I was a major as an English major I'm one of the five 
I was taking an English class and this state school made us read Jonathan Edwards. That was glorious. That was wonderful. And they were, they were making us read Jonathan Edwards to see what dour, terrible people Puritans were. And I remember reading the personal narrative of Jonathan Edwards and I had been wrestling with God's sovereignty in salvation. And I came across this, this paragraph in his personal narrative. Jonathan Edwards says, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. But I never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced. However, my mind rested in it. And it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day as to this. So that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. I have often since had not only a conviction but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. How did he get there? Well, he says, I couldn't figure it out. But if you read his testimony, you'll see the more he wrestled with and meditated on the scriptures and saw it and came to the conclusions and saw all of the intricacies and where it leads, his soul rested. God is sovereign. And that is a delight to my soul. If he's not sovereign, it's hopeless. If he is, there's joy. You want to cultivate joy? Cultivate your delight in the sovereignty of God. Rest in it. Third, here's how you cultivate joy. Consider affliction from God's perspective. Consider affliction from God's perspective. This is critical. You and I are in a sin-cursed world and we will not escape affliction. Either affliction from people on the outside or affliction on our bodies, our sin-cursed bodies or in innumerable other ways. So how will we think about affliction? You have to think of it from God's perspective. What is his perspective? I mean, I'm just gonna run through a number of verses. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What, what are we to do? Rejoice. What? I'm being slandered. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Why? How does God see it? Your reward is great in heaven. He sees it as this is setting you up for eternity. Weaning you away from all of the ways that you want to seek the approval of people around you. All of the ways you want just this easygoing life that makes you more attuned to the world and less attuned to God. All the prophets who went before you who were persecuted because they held to the truth will find eternity with God in heaven. What means more to you? Acceptance now or eternal acceptance? See it from God's perspective. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, Why? Knowing, not wondering, not hoping, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I tell you, if God is not sovereign, he can't promise that. 
But if he is, then you can rejoice in the trial because you know what he's doing. He's doing something to, again, wean you from your love of the world and connect you to the love of God, which lasts. When the disciples were persecuted in Acts 5, in verse 41, it says, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. What's God's perspective? The name of Jesus is more valuable than your personal present security. That's how valuable Jesus is. That's his perspective. It's okay. God has you. God has you. Rejoice. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Paul says, I'm suffering for your benefit. So I rejoice. I see what God is doing. My suffering is causing you to have hope in God because you see my responses to that. You see what I'm going through. You see the persecution and you say, this is worth it. God is more valuable than this. What's God's perspective? He's preparing you for all eternity. He is. He cares about you. He doesn't want to leave you to yourself and your own sinful heart. He cares about you. Rejoice. That's his perspective. Fourth way to cultivate joy. Engage in consistent spiritual fellowship with other people. With other Christians. Engage in consistent spiritual fellowship with others. Do you have consistent spiritual fellowship? I remember John Piper making the comment once. If you, if you find yourself not really loving the truth, loving the Bible, loving things, you know what would help you? It's like if you were someone who never really appreciated classical music and you're one of those. You're like, I, violins don't do it for me. I need words, I need guitars, but I, I'm interested to cultivate that a little bit. You know what would really help you is to go spend some time with people who really love it. Spend some time with people who really love that and, and find out why they value it and what are they hearing and what are they thinking. And, and you might find yourself saying, oh, I see that. I understand that. I get that. I still don't like it, but I see it. Spend some time with them. That's what Christian fellowship does. It causes you to rejoice in the truth. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What does that mean? Spend time with people who are rejoicing in God. Guess what you will do? Rejoice with them. Romans 15, 32. Paul is praying that he might come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. His joy was found in their company. Philippians 1.4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. What does that mean? I love you so much that I find myself praying in joy for you all the time. And he goes further in Philippians 2.28, he says, I've, I've sent Timothy all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Fellowship cultivates joy. Philippians 4.1, therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, I long to see you. I long to be in your presence. You are my joy. Fellowship cultivates joy. Philemon, verse 7. I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Fellowship cultivates joy. Even John in the little book, 2 John, verse 12. John says, I have many things to write to you. I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. Joy is never cultivated in isolation. But let me ask you, what are you tempted to do in discouragement? Isolate. The very thing that actually would liberate you from despair 
is the very thing you don't want to do, which should tell you it's sinister. You need people around you who love the truth. It cultivates joy. Number five, enjoy the spiritual growth of others. If you want to cultivate joy, enjoy the spiritual growth of others. A lot, lot of things I could point to here, a lot of that I want to point to. Here's another from 3 John, that little book we just breezed through so quickly. 3 John 3. I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you're walking in the truth. Listen to John. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. My joy is in your spiritual progress. Colossians 2.5, even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. You know what that does? Every time you're rejoicing in the good and the spiritual growth of others, guess what you're not doing? Despairing over yourself. You're not thinking about yourself, dwelling on yourself, thinking about your circumstances. You're looking at others and saying, look, let's, let's impart into their joy. It really helps with your joy. I want you to jot down. Here's your assignment for this afternoon just to see it. I'm not going to take us there. I really want to, but I'm not. But go to 2 Corinthians 7 this afternoon. And, and I was doing it even this morning, reading through first, 2 Corinthians 7 and marking every time that Paul rejoiced. And every time he rejoiced, it was connected to the spiritual growth of the Corinthians. Every time, every single time. Even though he had caused them sorrow, he was happy because it was a sorrow that liberated them from sin. A sixth way to cultivate joy. Number six, consider your future in God. Consider your future in God. Just, just one place to point you. Matthew 25. You remember when Jesus is talking about those who gave of themselves, sacrificed themselves for the good of others. And he said to those disciples who gave of themselves so liberally to the good of others, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. What is the joy of the master? The kingdom. The kingdom. Come into the future kingdom. That is the joy of your master. Give yourself now in disciplined focus in serving others for the glory of God and you will enter in the joy. If I just had that on my mind, this is not joy. This is not the present joy. I'm not living for my present joy now. I'm exhausting myself for future glory, which is joy. Number seven, here's another way to cultivate sin. Uh, joy. It won't cultivate sin. <laughs> Mourn over sin. Mourn over sin. Just seeing if you're listening. Mourn over sin. One verse, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed, spiritually satisfied. That's what blessed means. Spiritually satisfied are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? Sin. You hate sin. Cultivate a mourning over your sin, a sadness over sin so that you find your joy in the righteousness of God and the comfort that God gives. Number eight, one last one of how to cultivate. Don't live for temporary pleasures. Don't live for temporary pleasures. Moses had royalty as his pedigree. He was a son of Pharaoh's daughter. You remember that? a son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he gave it all up. Why? Hebrews eleven twenty five. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering re the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. Sin tastes good. It does. For a moment. How much joy do you have when you keep, keep sucking on that little lifesaver of sin? 
You think, but I, I like it. I like its taste. Yes, it, it has taste to it. And it's destroying you. It's destroying you personally. It's destroying your family. It's destroying your work ethic. It's destroying you. And you keep going back and back again. Stop. Stop loving temporary pleasures and live for eternal ones. You won't be, you won't be sorrowful that you stopped sin for eternal pleasure. That's how we cultivate it. Now, I, I want to round this out quickly. I know we don't have much time, but I, I just want to round this out quickly by answering two more questions. All right, we've seen what joy is, how to cultivate it. That's really the heart of everything that we're talking about. Let me ask a third question. How do we keep joy? I know how I can cultivate it. How do I keep it? I'm going to run these off really quickly for you, but you're going to have to think through them. Our passage says rejoice always. There's a number of things that come from that to my mind. Here's how you keep joy. First, joy is a command to constantly obey. It's a command. Rejoice always. That's a command. Find your joy in God. That's a command. Not to do so. Find your joy in something else. That is sin. Not to rejoice always is sin. Well, how could it be sin? Because you're not seeing things as God sees it. You're pursuing something else. You're going after something else. You're trying to satisfy yourself with something else other than God. It's a command to constantly obey. If you want to know how to do that, look at all your dissatisfactions and the thoughts of despair and compare them to what God says versus what you say about your circumstances and whose truth will you follow. You are not right. God is right. So follow him. Second, you have to see joy as a choice to constantly make. See, this is where it's so insidious to say you're not in charge of your own joy. You can't help it. Oh, yes. If he tells us rejoice always, I must constantly choose then. And that means I have the ability to choose. I can choose. If in Christ I'm liberated from the power of sin, I'm not a slave to it anymore. I'm alive in Christ in God, and I can choose to pursue joy. Third, See joy as a commitment to constantly maintain. It's a commitment to constantly maintain. That's why he says rejoice, present tense verb in the Greek, always rejoice, and then he adds the word always to be redundant. Always, it is a commitment to constantly maintain. Always. This is how you pursue joy. This is how you keep it. So if you're cultivating it, you're doing that, how do you keep hold of it? This is it. See, it's a command. It's, it's a choice. It's a commitment. Nothing should steal your joy. John 16, 22. You have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. I take that to mean you don't have to lose joy. We do, that's why we're commanded to rejoice, but you don't have to. One last question. How do we kill joy? We'll take every other, all the ways that we said cultivate it and don't do any of those. That's how you kill joy. Find your delight in calling something other than God's word truth. Find pleasure in self-sovereignty. Consider affliction from your own perspective and your own expectations. Isolate yourself from Christian fellowship. Find no pleasure and be indifferent to the growth of other people. Consider only your present circumstances. Cultivate anxious thoughts about your future. Take pleasure in what God calls sin. Rejoice in what God calls unrighteous. Live for temporary kinds of pleasure and you'll kill joy. And you won't have any lasting joy. Go ahead, compare yourselves to other people. 
Lust for the approval of others over God. Live for yourself. Think you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be, irrespective of what God's purposes and plans are. And you'll kill your joy. Set your expectations for yourself that God has not set. And you will be disappointed. And you'll live in despair. And you live daily in expectations that God has never ordained. You will be depressed. And don't rejoice in all of your spiritual abilities. Do you remember the disciples? They were so in awe that demons would bow in front of them. That is so cool, Jesus. They come back and they're like, this is awesome. We tell demons to do this and that and they do. You remember what Jesus said. He said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You what? Yeah, I was there when he fell. I watched it happen. And I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. This is Luke 10, 17. I've given you that power and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's it. Not my abilities, not my gifts, not all the benefits God has given you. I'm not rejoicing just in that. I rejoice my name is in heaven. Persistent joy is tied to a perpetual satisfaction about your ultimate security in Jesus. Steadfastness of hope is tied to the constancy of your joy. Until you grow in a biblical approach to joy, you will likely be given over to cultural expectations for happiness. And you'll never have consistent joy. You'll never have a satisfied heart because you never have settled pleasures in God. But when you have a pleasure in God, in connection to all of the dissatisfactions that your soul seems to find, but you're satisfied in God, you will then have joy. Rejoice always. Let's pray.